Hey everyone, welcome back. Laszlo Montgomery here, China History Podcast, CHP 215, the first one of the year of the pig. We're looking at the life and career of V.K. Wellington Koo. I saved this topic just for this special occasion, the centenary of the Paris Peace Conference, the Treaty of Versailles. It meant well, but a lot of regrets later on. We left off in Part 1 with the Paris Peace Conference, getting ready to blast off. All the best hotels in Paris were filled to the brim with diplomats and world leaders. The Great War was a horrible, destructive, cataclysmic event, and all who gathered in Paris in early 1919 were determined to never let this happen again, or at least for another 20 years. The Chinese delegation, represented by Wellington Koo, Alfred C., and C.T. Wang, operating out of the Hotel Lutetia, had pulled out all the stops as far as whining and dining, all the press and politicians, greats and near-greats gathered in Paris. And they used these occasions to badmouth the Japanese and bend the air of anyone who would listen. And with this smear campaign... They made it their business to ensure that Japan would get a drubbing in the court of public opinion, and that come treaty signing time, Japan would have no choice but to vacate those parts of Shandong province that they had snatched away from Germany during the outset of the war. And on January 27, 1919, a century ago last week, as I record this, Japan presented their case first, and the job was given to Baron Makino Nobuaki, to stand before the Council of Ten, two delegates each from the U.S., Britain, France, Italy, and Japan, and present his country's position. The 58-year-old Baron Makino made quite a compelling case, and after he had finished addressing the Council, there was absolutely no ambiguity where Japan stood on the Shandong question. Baron Makino said, This whole thing had nothing to do with China, and they should just butt out. This matter in Shandong, legally and diplomatically, was solely between Japan and Germany. And all those territories controlled by Germany before the war, this leased territory of Zhaozhou, together with the railways and other rights possessed by Germany, with respect to Shandong province, should be handed over to Japan. No beating around the bush for Baron Makino, it was only around this time that Wellington Koo and the rest of the Chinese delegation learned of their government's perfidy in signing that secret agreement known as the Nishihara Loans with Japan in September 1918. That was Baron Makino's ace in the hole, and he had played it during his speech before the council. It was quite shocking, not to mention upsetting when this got out. You could almost call it a game changer. The Chinese delegation were looking at each other asking, hey, did you know about this? You see, Japan was out to right a wrong from 1895. After winning the Liaodong Peninsula following the First Sino-Japanese War, you'll recall Germany, France, and Russia all teamed up to form the Triple Intervention, and after they stamped their feet and shook their heads, Japan had to surrender this prize to Russia until they got clobbered in the Russo-Japanese War, and then this strategic portion of Liaoning province ended up in Japan's possession. 
But Japan thought they had gotten shafted and disrespected by these Europeans in 1895, and they never forgot it. Now it was 1919, and they were not going to let any European nation deny them for a second time. The opposition to Baron Makino's speech from the Chinese side was predictably fiery. Besides this 60-member delegation from China, there were also a lot of vocal Chinese students in France, about 13,000 of them. They were following this closely and became a constant presence, demonstrating and protesting against Japan. So Wellington Coup gave China's reply the following day, January 28th, 1919. He delivered a very convincing argument and got a chance to utilize the entirety of his top-drawer education, oratory skills, and mastery of international law, not to mention the history of this moment in time. It was considered his finest performance on the world stage. First time out at bat, too. Koo argued that all these signed agreements that Baron Makino had went on about the day before, all were signed under duress, with a gun to China's head. I read that when Koo mentioned the 21 demands that Japan forced on China in 1915. David Lloyd George didn't even know what they were. Talk about an uphill battle. But Wellington Koo hit all the right notes in his speech, mentioning all of the principles held so dearly by Woodrow Wilson, you know, about any nation's right to self-determination. Throughout his oratory, he kept Wilson's 14 points in the back of his mind, knowing this was going to be the hook that allowed Wilson's sympathies to fall in line with China's position. It was a masterful performance. He made an impassioned and moving case for returning Shandong and for the European powers to be more respectful of Chinese territorial integrity. He had called Shandong, quote, the cradle of Chinese civilization, the birthplace of Confucius and Mengxius, and a holy land for the Chinese, end quote. He deconstructed Japan's case one unequal agreement and provocative action at a time, and exposed Japan as an aggressor who defiled international law and who needed to be stopped now. What is there to say? It was like the Kennedy-Nixon debate. Baron Makino appeared old, stiff, gruff, and didn't know how to appeal to the sensibilities of all gathered in that room like Koo knew how to do. Young, 32-year-old Wellington Koo with his superb American education, debating skills, good looks, and polished presence. He had become a hero to the throngs of Chinese students in Paris and to all Chinese intently watching the proceedings. His eloquence and the meaning behind the words he crafted represented the hopes and aspirations of all Chinese. Well, those who knew what was going on, at least. Yeah, the Japanese weren't happy to see how well the speech was received and how these other representatives from other nations congratulated Wellington Koo and complimented him for the fine words he had spoken. News of the speech got back to Tokyo, and they really started to lean on the foreign ministry in Beijing. After Koo's words were read in Tokyo, they said in no uncertain terms to the China government to get their team in Paris on board with what had already been secretly agreed to. Japan's representatives thought they had made a deal with the Beijing government and had been assured there wasn't going to be any 
pushback on this secret Shandong deal. Those calling the shots in Japan reached for the well-worn playbook and used the same threat of military blunt force trauma and threatening the negotiators with measures that would upset the current political situation. Japanese representatives in China told the Beijing government to get those guys in Paris in line or else. And the Chinese delegation, well, there was still the usual sniping going on behind the scenes. Alfred C. and C.T. Wong, who were part of the Southern government faction, well, they weren't so thrilled to see Wellington Koo getting all this shine in the press and at the cocktail receptions. Eh, this stirred up the resentment factor a little and did nothing to help bridge the differences within the group. This Paris Peace Conference, it wasn't some weekend gathering. It ground on for three more months. And then another couple months more to sign the treaty. There were plenty more important matters on the table to resolve than what mattered to the Chinese delegation. But as far as the Chinese delegation, all the Chinese students on the streets of Paris, all Chinese everywhere who were cognizant of what was going on in Paris, it all boiled down to one thing and one thing only, the Shandong question. And Wellington Koo, at this moment in history, had to step up and be China's main spokesman on the world stage. So after the speeches, his point made and the matter of Shandong made crystal clear on the Chinese and Japanese sides, it was left to Wilson, Lloyd George, Clemenceau, and Orlando to decide on the matter. As I said, the British and French, their minds were made up. As the weeks wore on, the American side was conflicted between doing the right thing and playing power politics. Wellington Koo got another brush with greatness on March 26th, two months after his big debut speech. In this meeting with the American president, and again three weeks later on April 17th, Wilson gave Koo sufficient assurances that he was going to take care of them. But you know how it is when you need someone to go to bat for you, and they assure you in a very unassuring way that they'll take care of you. That's where this was at. Woodrow Wilson would not say the magic words that the Chinese delegation wanted to hear, that he was on China's side and would fight to support China on the Shandong question, and that he'd convince the others to see it his way. Nothing like that was forthcoming. As it got closer to treaty signing time, the backpedaling began. The notion of allowing Japan and China to work out this whole Shandong thing between themselves was bandied about. Wellington Koo, in a strongly worded memo to Wilson, urged him to settle this here in Paris. And he minced no words about how much the China side was counting on Wilson to be their champion. The other powers had already made it clear they sided with Japan. When it became evident that Wilson was going to take the position that treaties must be honored, Wellington Koo countered, not if they're going to cause you obvious trouble down the line. He warned Wilson, either stop Japan now or stop them later. They were not going to halt their China plans at the Liaodong Peninsula in Shandong. This was only their beachhead. Koo had wrote in his diary from that time, quote, China has come to the West for justice. If she should fail to get it, 
the people would attribute the failure to the attitude of the West, which declined to lend a helping hand to China merely because some of its leading powers privately pledged to support Japan. End quote. And all this time, while the Chinese side was schmoozing all the diplomats and influencers among the leading powers, the Japanese team didn't just roll over and die. They, too, were playing for keeps. Baron Makino Nobuaki, well, he didn't have Wellington Koo's youthful good looks and eloquence of speech, but he had his own way of hammering home his point and making himself clear. On April 24, 1919, in the final moments, he came straight out and said, if Shandong got handed to China, they weren't going to sign the treaty. And he had all the ammo he could have ever dreamed of as far as pointing to all the unequal treaties the West had made China sign, Baron Makino, well, he didn't use these words, but he was asking, why is it that the British, Americans, and French could screw China, but Japan couldn't? It was a difficult point to refute. Two days before, on April 22, 1919, at Le Palais de l'Isée, Wilson tried to reason with Baron Makino and desperately sought out some sort of compromise. But Makino had drawn his line in the sand. Decide in favor of China on the Shandong question? Japan walks. Goodbye, League of Nations. All this time, Japan had been calling for the inclusion of this racial equality clause in the League of Nations. Any staunch imperialist wouldn't like that. Not if they were European, anyway. A hundred years ago, in 1919... They weren't prepared to accept such an idea, and the Japanese side was always rebuffed on this point. But they kept hammering Wilson, and even said, put this racial equality clause into the League of Nations, and we'll back off on Shandong. Yeah, they knew Wilson wasn't going to do that. Asians? Blacks? Same as whites? Hmm, I don't know. The prevailing imperialism model would take a huge hit if that was agreed to. Wellington Coup made his final, desperate appeal before Wilson, Clemenceau, and Lloyd George. But he got rebuffed again. Wilson, in his infinite wisdom, decided in the end to kick this can down the road a piece and settle it later. Bottom line once again, we must respect treaties. Coup had warned Wilson if this was how it was going to be, he was going to alienate China from the West, and they'd go take their chances somewhere else. He had written, quote, It is a question of whether we can guarantee a peace of half a century to the Far East, or of a situation that will be created which can lead to war within ten years, end quote. They even brought in a sacred cow, Arthur Balfour, to try and mediate a solution. He had just made his famous Balfour Declaration two years prior. Anyway, he tried, but Japan's negotiators were not budging. And so, you know how this all ends. April 26th, 1919, final offers were made. Everyone was exhausted, grumpy, and anxious to get home. Woodrow Wilson had spent almost five months overseas. Can you imagine a president doing that today? I mean, he was ailing from arteriosclerosis and only had five more years to live. He threw in the towel. Four days later, on April 30th, the final document was confirmed. 
all the pleas and warnings made by Wellington Koo and the Chinese side by this time were falling on deaf ears. Treaties had to be honored, was the bottom line. And if Duan Chi Rei and his regime cut secret deals with Japan in 1917-1918, that was China's problem, not the Allied powers. Article 156 of the Treaty of Versailles, the Shandong Question, was decided and the territories went to Japan. And as far as China's contribution to the Allied war effort, all those laborers, ironically mostly from Shandong province, the Chinese labor corps, in the end, it was all for nothing. No one cared or respected their sacrifices and contribution. And so, all eyes were on Wellington Koo. Was he going to sign or not sign the Treaty of Versailles? The decision wasn't his, of course, but he was the one who had to ink his signature to the document. Now, mind you, it was a done deal end April, but the final signing didn't happen till June 28th. Even after the decision had been made regarding Shandong, the Chinese delegation still made final attempts to warn anyone who would listen of their error. But as I said, this Paris Peace Conference had taken way longer than expected, and everyone was more interested in packing up their suitcases than listening to the Chinese representatives. And besides, the Chinese were told it had already gone to the printers and it's too late now to change anything. It was over. So as if everyone didn't know this was coming, the word got out that China got disrespected once again. So outraged and exasperated were the Chinese students, intellectuals, workers, and everyone else following this whole drama in Paris Less than a week later, a protest in Beijing, led by 3,000 students from 13 university groups, gathered and marched, along with urban workers and other patriots, in protest of this betrayal in Paris, as it was quickly called. The date was May 4, 1919, the 100-year anniversary of this seminal event also coming up soon. And May 4th? Some historians will say this inspired the formation, two years later, of the Chinese Communist Party. In the wake of the May 4th protest, there followed a disillusion with Western-style liberal democracy and an interest in Marxism and getting to know the Soviets a little better. As treaty signing day fast approached, Wellington Koo was getting very clear signals from both the southern and northern factions in China to not sign. And all the Chinese students on the streets and Paris and elsewhere, they too were saying, don't sign. When the pen got handed to Wellington Koo, as he still waited for the final instructions from Beijing on what they wanted him to do, yeah, he took it upon himself to refuse to sign. How could he? So he walked away, and after his decision became a fait accompli, the word finally arrived from the deciders in Beijing not to sign it. Well, Wellington Koo figured that one out by himself. After refusing to sign the treaty, the Chinese delegation released a statement that read, quote, The Paris Peace Conference, having denied China justice in the settlement of the Shandong question, and having today, in effect, prevented them from signing the treaty without sacrificing their sense of right, justice, and patriotic duty, the Chinese delegation submits their case to the impartial judgment of the world. End quote. 
The final treaty was signed on June 28, 1919 in the Hall of Mirrors at the Palace of Versailles. In China, they called this the Day of Sorrow. Woodrow Wilson regretted this decision to his dying day, and he received plenty of political blowback because of it. His political enemies had a field day pointing out the hypocrisies and as most of us who have studied history know, his League of Nations, his baby, the one thing that would be his lasting legacy, didn't work out as planned. The big winner, as it turned out, were the Bolsheviks. With this strong wind of discontent blowing all over China, the Soviets unfurled their sails and rode that breeze all the way into the 1920s and 30s. They quickly got the common turn all established and sent them down to China to take advantage of the situation. If it was in the interests of the Western powers and Japan to keep China weak and divided, yeah, the Soviets knew there was an opening for them to cozy up to their neighbor to the south. If I may quote the great Paul French, quote, Japan's diplomatic victory in Paris was simply to remind the Europeans of their own aggressive land snatches and imperialist history, and embarrass the Americans with the reality of their own imperfect, segregated society. End quote. So that was all over. Wellington Koo was now a well-known name in the world of international diplomacy. His second wife had passed in November 1918, during the Spanish flu pandemic. Not long after, around the time of the Paris Peace Conference, Ku began courting a woman who was to become his third wife. Her name was Wei Huilan, or Huang Huilan in Mandarin. She was the daughter of a hugely successful Chinese-Indonesian trading baron. The family had seeded their fortune in opium trading and later in sugar and other commodities. Huang Huilan was beautiful, highly educated, creative, and in her own lifetime had become quite a celeb and style icon. She, along with her sister, lived a fabulous, interesting, and extravagant life. Within two weeks of meeting her, Wellington Koo proposed, and on October 10th, 1919, they announced their engagement at a lavish ball in Paris. And they were married the following month at the Chinese legation in Brussels. And then the day after the wedding, they were off and running to Geneva, where Ku was to attend the opening of the ill-fated League of Nations. In October 1920, he was made ambassador to Great Britain. And then the following year, he was back in Washington, participating in meetings that looked to settle the Shandong problem. During this Washington period came one of the more unforgettable anecdotes from Wellington Koo's life. Whilst at a uh, D.C. soiree one night, one of the attendees sitting near Koo tried to chat him up, not knowing who he was and all, and he said to him, You like Soupy Soupy? Koo ignored the insult and you know, didn't answer back. Then he went on to deliver the keynote address for the evening, and then upon returning to his seat, he looked at the guy and said, You like Speechy Speechy? After a six-year absence in 1921... Ku was back in China, arriving to a hero's welcome. He was made Minister of Foreign Affairs, and his mission impossible was to attempt to extricate China from all these nasty treaties they had signed. The Beijing government was in tatters, and China was as broke as they had ever been. Crushed by these 
boxer indemnities. The government couldn't get it together. And from 1922 to 1927, warlords controlled everything in the North. Between 1916 and 1928, the Chinese government burned through eight different presidents, 24 cabinets, and almost two dozen premiers. May 5, 1923, came the Lincheng Incident, a small footnote from history. A couple dozen foreigners fell into a hostage situation in southern Hebei on a Beijing to Shanghai train ride. This involved renegade bandits associated with some warlord faction. One of the foreigners ended up being killed, and this led to a whole diplomatic mess. Wellington Koo was called in to deal with this. By now, he surely knew what it was like to be Li Hongzhang, always back on his heels in these dealings with foreigners. After this incident, foreigners started demanding more boots on the ground to protect their interests in China. And they were screaming that the China government was not doing their job protecting the foreigners. These belligerent statements made by the Western powers were leaked to the Chinese public, who responded with predictable outrage at the audacity of these demands. The British weren't happy about that. The matter was sort of a tempest in a teapot, but the end result was it made China look bad and perpetuated the narrative that was mostly true that the government was unable to ensure public security and tranquility. Throughout the 1920s, Wellington Koo found himself in the unenviable position of becoming China's chief excuse maker, fighting off everyone who was trying to get a piece of China. During this period, the Japanese tried to have Koo bumped off. After all he had done and said, he was practically public enemy number one with the Japanese officials. Amidst all the chaos and revolving doors of leaders, in 1924 and 1926, Ku was one of those officials who was made acting premier and interim president of China. He had to flee for a while after a coup in 1924. The last emperor, Puyi, he too fled in this coup, right into the arms of Japan, who put him to good use later when Manchukuo time came along. In the end, the Manchurian warlord, Zhang Zolin, ended up in control of the Beijing government. And then, in 1925, Sun Yat-sen took a train up north to try and work out some kind of reconciliation with the northern government. But on March 12, 1925, he succumbed to liver cancer and died while staying at Wellington Ku's home. And with Sun Yat-sen's passing, the Chiang Kai-shek era began. The first thing Jiang attempted was to rid China of these warlords. His answer to this problem that had dogged China for a decade was to launch the Northern Expedition in 1926. When the Nationalist troops arrived in Beijing in June 1927, Ku decided it was time to retire. Being so high profile and so closely associated with the Northern faction in Beijing, Ku knew his fortunes with the Southern government we're not good. When they made a move to go after him and put a warrant out for his arrest, he fled to Weihai Wei, where the British were still in charge and sought refuge there. From there, he went into exile for 18 months until Marshal Zhang Zolin got blown up by the Japanese, June 4, 1928. His son, Zhang Liang, the young marshal, he took over, and he acted as Wellington Ku's protector 
and brought him back into the government as foreign minister in 1930. And then the following year, 9-18-31, Mukden incident, all eyes were watching what was happening in Manchuria. In his capacity as China's top diplomat, Wellington Koo got selected to attend the Lytton Commission, assembled by the League of Nations. And this commission was tasked with looking into Japan's seizure of Manchuria. Wellington Koo was the loudest voice at the gathering and strongly condemned Japan for its actions, which he told everyone was just the beginning. He turned out to be right about that. October 1932, the report came out, and the Lytton Commission concluded the Japanese were the aggressors, and that Manchukuo, proclaimed earlier in the year on February 18, 1932, that wasn't no country. It was merely a puppet state, and all that that meant. Oh boy, the Japanese delegation didn't like that. On that day, in February 1933, they all got up out of their seats and filed out of the League of Nations in protest, proving Woodrow Wilson's greatest legacy was, as they say in Chinese, fager, waste paper. And I read, as the Japanese delegation all slowly marched out of the conference hall in protest, Madame Wellington Koo, the glamorous and talented Huang Hui Lan, she was up in the gallery watching the proceeding, and as they walked out, there she was, standing up and applauding. She was quite a lady. I'll post a link to her autobiography in my show notes if you would like to know more about her. It's available in Chinese and English. You remember 12-12-1936, the Xi'an Incident? The young marshal, Chang Xueliang, kidnapped Chiang Kai-shek, and then he himself ended up getting arrested and incarcerated for a very long time. Chang Xueliang was Wellington Ku's political benefactor, and with him out of the way, things were dicey for a while. Then came the Marco Polo Bridge incident on July 7, 1937. As much as Chiang Kai-shek's gang didn't care for Wellington Ku, they needed him to go argue China's case before the League of Nations. He gave a full-throated appeal to the League to send help, mentioning every known atrocity that had taken place so far at the hands of the Japanese military. Well, no need to rehash all that Sino-Japanese history for the umpteenth time here at the CHP. Let me just say Wellington Koo was made China's ambassador to France, from 1936 until the Nazis moved in in 1940. From there, he went to London and served as ambassador until 1946. Now, whilst in Paris, Ku met and began romancing his fourth wife. She was Juliana Young, Yen Yun, the first woman to graduate from Fudan University in Shanghai, one of China's premier institutions of higher learning. Still is today. Ku and Juliana Young were separated during the war. Long story, won't get into it. But they met up after the war in New York and later married in 1959. Ku had divorced Huang Hui Lan in 1958. After World War II, Ku was one of China's ten representatives at the founding of the United Nations and was the first one to sign the UN Charter on June 26, 1945. And with the Chinese Civil War that followed in China, Wellington Koo hardly ever left the U.S. During these post-war years, he worked the halls of power in D.C. constantly, 
and he had a hell of a Rolodex, and he knew everyone in D.C. He went to all social events and always did his best to line up whatever American support he could for Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government. With the current Truman administration, that was a tall order. He tried his best to spin every negative turn of events in as positive a light as possible. But Truman, he didn't like Jiang. And when the great General George Marshall tried and failed to sort things out between the nationalists and communists, he too left with a negative feeling about Jiang. And after that, the USA pulled the plug on the Republic of China. Ku was fighting a losing battle, and as you know, in the end, we cut the nationalists loose. And Wellington Ku was part of that mass migration of Chinese who went to Taiwan. And from 1949 to 1956, he remained a stalwart inside the KMT and the Republic of China government. He spent the first years of the post-1949 era going out to fight the same fight Taiwan carries out today negotiating for recognition and support. As it had always been since the beginning of his diplomatic career, he never enjoyed the benefit of having the upper hand, never getting the face that he knew his country deserved. Despite all that, he went out and built bridges with every nation who would give him the time. He played a major role in cobbling together what became known as the China Lobby in the United States. Wellington Koo had been the one to initially approach Time Life founder Henry Luce and enlist his aid to help the crusade to rid China of communism. And remember, late 40s and into the 1950s, McCarthyism was flaming hot. Now, Joseph N. Welch didn't say, have you no decency, sir, till June 1954. So during this period, Wellington Koo was able to get a lot of traction as far as U.S. support of the nationalist regime in Taiwan. Henry Luce was quite a powerful and influential man in his day. Wellington Koo racked up a lot of hours cozying up to the China lobby and fought the good fight in D.C. to support Taiwan and their fight with the communists. Koo had sort of fashioned Taiwan as the last bastion of hope against communism. He ended up resigning from the government not long after the Jinmen Matsu crisis in 1956, though he remained an advisor to Chiang Kai-shek. And for his final act in his long and historic career, during the same year he retired, he accepted a judgeship at the new International Court of Justice at The Hague, later rising to the post of vice president of the court. After serving 10 years on the court, he stepped aside in 1967, age 79, and went back into retirement. And in the final 18 years of his life, he watched what happened in Taiwan as all her friends left her one by one. He lived to watch Richard Nixon shake Zhou Enlai's hand in 1972. And he lived to witness the act that we celebrate this year in 2019, 40 years ago when the American and Chinese leaders, Jimmy Carter and Deng Xiaoping, signed the document that normalized relations between the U.S. and PRC. You know, Chairman Mao had invited Wellington Koo to come to China in 1972 when Nixon visited, but he didn't accept. Yeah, in the end, he ended up becoming a U.S. citizen, and 
lived out the rest of his years with his fourth wife, Juliana Young, in his beloved New York City. You know, she had three daughters from her first marriage to Chinese diplomat Yang Guangsheng, and one of these daughters is the legendary Chinese-American Shirley Young, a businesswoman of great renown and a founding member of the Committee of 100. Wellington Koo was her stepfather. He died on November 14, 1985, same day as the Guangxu Emperor, 77 years earlier. He sure lived to a ripe old age, 97, 1888 to 1985. He got to witness quite a bit of history over the arc of his lifetime, not to mention having a role in some of it. And his third wife, Huang Huilan, she outlived him, passing in 1992 at the age of 103. And Juliana Young, she was no slouch either. She just passed away two years ago in May 2017, aged 111. You know, living as long as he did. Wellington Koo, because of his short stints as nationalist premier and interim president, goes down as the oldest Chinese leader in history. His 97 years on this earth allowed him to beat out both Deng Xiaoping and the Qianlong Emperor. His life, from the earliest days of his education till the very end, was interlaced with the fortunes and caprices of U.S. government China policy. I'm sure more than once he might have thought, with friends like the Yanks, who needs enemies? Wellington Koo, a marquee name in China politics and diplomacy from the 1920s to 1950s, he ended up on the wrong side of the revolution, not once, but twice, 1912 and 1949. He lived quite a life, a China patriot till the end, even Chairman Mao said so. Let's not forget him. And if you find yourself in Shanghai, head up to Jia Ding to visit the Wellington Ku Museum, the Gu Weijun Chen Liashi. A quick plug for a new history podcast. Just listen to the first few episodes. Shows a lot of promise. Dave Broker's new Industrial Revolutions podcast. Guess what it's all about? It's in all the podcast apps. The Industrial Revolutions podcast. Personally recommended by yours truly. Laszlo Montgomery signing off from La Cité des Anges, Los Angeles, California, once again, and as always, imploring you to please come back again next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.